0: Next guest is former special envoy to the Middle East uh, under President Trump. In his new book, Jason Greenblatt takes readers inside the White House for some of the Trump administration's biggest diplomacy triumphs, including the signing of the Abraham Accords, author of In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Jason Greenblatt joins us now. Welcome to Rising.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Talk to us about the book and how important it was, uh, you know, from your perspective, for this agreement, the Abraham Agreement, to be reached.
1: Well, the book was intended to sort of shatter the myths about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, and try to give the Biden administration some advice, in particular about the Iran deal, which uh, they don't seem to be heeding if news reports are accurate. So I think it's a particularly timely book right now. And it does take people into the behind the scenes without any kind of gossip or backstabbing, but the road that led to the Abraham Accords, which is only continuing to help stabilize the Middle East. And what do you
0: think Biden is doing wrong right now? The the kind of subtitle of the book suggests that the Biden administration is threatening or or putting in jeopardy uh, what the Trump administration achieved. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's basically making all of our allies, once again, as they did with the Obama administration, very, very uncomfortable, very nervous. They're now trying to figure out how to ally themselves with others, including China and even Iran. You see ambassadors being uh, uh, given again back to Iran and from Iran to the region. So the the region is extraordinarily nervous right now. Nobody knows what to expect, and people believe that the Biden administration is abandoning the region. By signing this deal with Iran, or potentially signing this deal with Iran.
2: Um, Jason, uh, when I remember hearing about the Abraham Accords, I was um, it, there, it was very bittersweet. On the one hand, it seemed like such an incredible achievement. On the other hand, talking to dear friends, Palestinians living in you know the West Bank, living in Gaza, it, it was there was something about it that signaled that they were now no longer sort of um, on the table in the same way um, as a barrier to peace between Israel and these other countries. Talk to me about that from your point of view. I know that you too have done a lot of advocacy and a lot of um, diplomacy in those communities as well. Talk to me about what you would say to Palestinians looking at um, the Abraham Accords as something that sort of puts them on the back burner.
1: Well, I wish they weren't. I wish they weren't on the back burner. They should be on the front burner. Um, what the Abraham Accords did was remove a veto card. The Palestinian leadership, and let's remember this too, is leadership in Ramallah, and there are terrorist leaders in in Gaza. They are not willing to negotiate in any way, shape, or form in good faith in a realistic manner with Israel. So they took themselves off the table, if you will. And I wish that weren't the case. But what the Abraham Accords did do was prevent them from allowing Israel to make peace with its Arab neighbors. They did make peace twice before. Now they made peace several more times. But the people who could gain the most from the Abraham Accords are actually the Palestinians if they'd only come to the table in good faith. We
0: pulled out of the Iran deal, uh, and I would argue you know, that itself being a destabilizing uh, move that makes you know some kind of conflict more likely, and, and we did that, not Ar- Iran. The Biden administration trying to, you know, get back to some kind of understanding uh, with Iran. Uh, do you disagree with that, uh, that perspective? You know, why should we have gotten out of the Iran deal? What was the reason for doing so?
1: Sure. I do disagree with the perspective. Because what the original Iran deal did was give Iran a fortune of money, which they then used, rather than help their people, to foment terrorism, to throw missiles and rockets at the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel all sorts of mischief and bad acts and murderous acts. In terms of the nuclear part of it, which, of course, is the most existential threat to the region, and even potentially to the United States, it didn't stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons. It simply held off it for a period of time. Once that deal expired, Iran was actually free to develop nuclear weapons. So the new deal apparently will do the same. Many argue that it's even weaker and shorter. I don't know, because none of us really know what's in there. But what it does is it puts our head in the sand, pretends the problem isn't there, and hope for the best. And then we have to tell our kids when there is a problem, well, we did our best to, you know, delay things. But now it's your problem.
0: But d- didn't pulling out of the deal? There's no delaying. Then it's they, they can go back to because uh, we. I mean, we did that. If, if the concern is they might in the future be able to or decide to develop nuclear weapons anyway, I mean, we took that out of the future and we just made it potentially now.
1: Well, what we do need is a plan B. Nobody seems to have come up with a plan B. It's a fair point. But signing up for a deal that makes no sense is not an excuse for taking a united stand against a regime that wants to murder people around it, destroy Israel, take over Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and others. So you're right. It's not a perfect situation. But at the same time, we don't have um, unity of opinion on this. And that makes it harder to put pressure on the Iranian regime.
2: Do you see the Abraham Accords as a cause or a symptom of this kind of realignment that we're now seeing in the Middle East? And where do you see America's role in that going forward?
1: I see it as both a cause and a symptom. And I think America can play a tremendous role if it stood by our allies, if it didn't disrespect Saudi Arabia, although I think President Biden has started to turn the corner on that. I hope he continues to turn and you know, in a big way. But I think America could play a very strong role encouraging our friends and allies to work together against terrorism, against the Iranian regime. At the same time, I think that the region could actually join together even without American leadership. I don't think that they need America now that the train has left the station in terms of the Iran deal. But I'm isn't, sorry. isn't
0: Saudi Arabia a sponsor of terrorism and violence and all sorts of things, uh, just as, as, like, Iran is. So I, I find it interesting that you say we should have a kind of more uh, confrontational relationship with, Saudi, with Iran, but not with Saudi Arabia. It's, it seems like you know, both are up to no good in a lot of ways.
1: Well, Saudi Arabia is not threatening any of its neighbors. Saudi Arabia is not a terror sponsor state. Saudi Arabia is actually making tremendous strides. I mean, we could talk about the past or we could talk about the future. The future of Saudi Arabia, I think, is extraordinarily bright.
2: Um, You know, President Trump very, very well, you've worked with him for 23 years, I believe is the number. Um, you know, in so many ways, he sort of took an axe to the status quo to the kind of understanding, you know, of the of the expert class about so many foreign policy issues. Um, Where did that come from? Where did his his view of what was possible in terms of foreign relations come from?
1: So he had took a view, I mean, a business-like view. If we can make progress, we're going to make progress. If we can't make progress, we're not going to waste time simply speaking diplomatic speak. And that's the view and the approach that we took. We were respectful. We were diplomatic. But we were also pragmatic. And we said, whether it was to the Palestinians or Israel or Arab neighbors, uh, Israel's Arab neighbors and our allies, look, we're here to make progress. Either you're going to help us make progress or we have lots of other things to do around the world, and we're going to move on to the other things to do. So help us make progress or not, it's your choice. That's that's the approach mm-hmm. of Trump. He's a very pragmatic business person. He knows he had a limited amount of time in the White House, whether it was four years or eight years, and he wanted to make progress.
2: So on the topic of President Trump, I wonder if we can ask you, we're sort of um, uh, a few days out from the affidavit, the heavily redacted affidavit that justified the raid on Mar-a-Lago being released. Um, I wonder if you can tell us anything, if you're comfortable telling us anything about Trump's character that would shed light on, you know, how, how, how big of a security risk this posed, what the likelihood is that he took um, things that would have endangered America's security home with him to Mar-a-Lago. Is there any light you can shed on this um, from your experience knowing him so well?
1: Sure. So we still don't know a lot of facts. It was heavily redacted, as you say. The Donald Trump that I know, that I worked for, for 23 years, is a smart guy. I don't think he would have taken anything that would have endangered people, at least not knowingly. So I'm still sitting back trying to see, you know, I'm reading everything, uh, trying to understand what we're talking about. But until we get more facts, I really don't know, and it's hard to take any kind of opinion. But no, I don't think he would have taken anything intentionally that would have, uh, I guess the two accusations are that would have harmed Americans or spies or informants across the world, and some are even accusing him of taking it in order to enrich himself, to those sound not like the Donald Trump that I know.
0: I want to push back one more time on the Saudi Arabia thing, just because I think it's an important difference between our, our perspectives. You know, there's the J- Jamal Khashoggi, there's the there's the airstrikes in Yemen that have killed thousands of people, uh, a- alleged to be uh, c- non-combatant civilian targets, hospitals, etc. I mean, that looks to me like. A, a, a relationship with a country that is involved in a lot of violence and a lot of bad stuff. So, again, I don't know why it's, it should be—it seems hypocritical to be, like, letting them off the hook, as, as Biden now is doing. He's, he's, you know, wants to beg Saudi Arabia for the oil I guess we're not producing here. Uh, but I, to excuse what Saudi Arabia is doing and then to be—but draw a hard line against Iran, again, doesn't make a lot of sense from where I'm sitting.
1: Yeah, well, I agree with your characterization that he's begging Saudi Arabia for the oil that maybe I would say should be producing here. But the two examples, you know, Yemen, Yemen, the Houthi rebels, or really they're terrorists, have been attacking Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is defending itself, it's defending its citizens. It's the obligation of any country to defend itself and its citizens, no different than when Hamas terrorizes Israel. As far as Jamal Khashoggi, you know, it's hard. Yes. He took responsibility for what was a heinous act. It was a a really just absolutely horrific act. We don't know with certainty. We know what the CIA says, that there's a high degree of likelihood that he ordered it. He said it happened under his watch. And we could forever judge Saudi Arabia by that event, or we could also see where Saudi Arabia is going, the direction that it's going, and recognize that it's a very, very important strategic ally in the region. I don't think it's fair to continue to judge a country through the Jamal Khashoggi lens forever
2: well so Uh, just just continuing this point um one more for for just another minute why is it that um if iran is saying it wants that same deal maker treatment that president trump was able to bring to so many of these other conflicts with such success why not extend that to them why should there be a hard line there um as opposed to other
1: places because the deal that Iran is proposing, and again, we don't know, similar to what's happening with the mar raid, we don't really know what's going on behind closed doors, but by all accounts, what the deal would be would simply allow Iran to create a nuclear weapon in several years. That's not really a smart deal. The deals that Trump was interested in making were smart deals, long-term deals, deals that made sense for everybody involved. The deal that Iran seemingly is proposing is uh, something that makes sense for it. And yes, uh, to Robbie's point, it makes sense for us for a short period of time. I know Robbie didn't say a short period of time. It makes sense today, but it won't make sense in several years from now. And it certainly won't make sense when more missiles are flying, whether from Lebanon to Israel, Gaza to Israel, Yemen to Saudi Arabia, or Yemen to the UAE, or beyond. Mm.
0: Well, Jason Greenblatt, we so appreciate you joining us. Again, the book is In the Path of Abraham How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And we'll be back with more rising right after this. The U.S. is currently in a friendship recession. That's sad with men being the focus. According to a study from the Survey Center on American Life, the percentage of men with at least six close friends fell by half between 1990 and 2021. Reasons for this phenomenon include 52% of American men ages 18 to 29 still living at home with their parents, working longer hours, switching jobs more frequently, and individuals are going into a physical office less than before, according to our next guest, Aubrey Hirsch.
3: A further study by the Survey Center on American Life noted that men are 79% less likely to receive emotional support, with studies showing a specific link between suicide and loneliness in men and a greater fear of intimacy. Here to speak with us on the subject is writer, illustrator, and author Aubrey Hirsch. Welcome, Aubrey. Thanks for having me. All right, so what do you attribute this to? There's been a lot of conversation about uh, COVID and lockdowns and the ways that that's changed our society, but it seems like this phenomenon has predated all of that.
4: Yeah, there's definitely been a line trending downward for the last, like, 30 years in terms of um, men's ability to make and maintain close friendships. And you hit on a couple of the reasons in your introduction. You know, people are working longer hours. They're switching jobs more often um, and going into the office less. And all of those things make it more challenging to create friendships and also to have time for friendships outside of work. Also, people are living with their parents longer, uh, which offers them emotional support in, in the form of their parents. So they're less likely to go out and find it with their peers. And also, it makes less room and space to you know, have parties, have friends over, have just your own private life, things like that. People are also getting married later. But I also found in my research, I think a lot of this has to do with the way that we socialize boys into men. Um, We teach men that their vulnerabilities are a bad thing, that they should hide or repress their emotions. You know, we don't celebrate their connections. We celebrate their fortitude or, you know, what looks like strength from the outside instead of focusing on those things that, you know, vulnerability is really the most important thing when you're building connections and building relationships with people. So I think we're also doing men a disservice when we bring them up and it makes it harder
0: for them to connect when they're older. But isn't that, uh, I I know exactly what you're talking about, but isn't that kind of tendency weakening a little bit over time? It it seemed like I don't know men of my generation, and certainly the next generation, more uh, feel far more, you know, liberated to openly discuss feelings or emotional connections or uh, all that. Like that, really. Ha- I mean, it, not just men; women, everyone has gotten more open about talking about their mental well-being, etc. You know, seeking therapy, all those things, which I, I would think might foster um, uh, greater, on, on a maybe not great but greater than, than previously um, connections between men. So I'm a, I'm a little bit surprised that if the trajectory seems to be away from close male friendships.
4: Yeah, I was surprised too, because that that's also sort of my impression, but it's possible some of that is just our own experience or the people mm. that we prefer to surround ourselves with you know don't maybe don't necessarily have these ideas of uh traditional masculinity oh yeah. also that i'm sorry there's also some really interesting thinking out there that men's idea of an ideal woman has shifted really dramatically in the last 30 years like it's no longer everybody's looking for a kind of like quiet compliant you know homemaker people are interested in women in leadership positions you know they accept women at colleges and universities women in power but the idea of what an ideal man looks like has not really shifted as much in that time. You know, we still look mm. at men as kind of the same way. Hmm.
3: Hmm. I have I have some thoughts and feelings. Well, speaking of the kind of um, dating expectations and the effect that our kind of um, uh, intimate relationship expectations of on genders are, are men and women are affecting this. I'm curious about the effect of online dating, generally speaking. Because I definitely have observed people kind of relying on the ease with which you can access kind of short term partners and relationships online um, as a substitute for keeping in touch with friends who are often now further away than they used to. People are very mobile mm-hmm. for their careers. The friends that you met in college might not end up in the same state as you, you don't end up in the same state as your parents. And there is a way that if you want to be occupied on a weekend, you can hop on an app and be mm-hmm. occupied with someone that is ultimately probably going to be a much shorter term presence in your life than a a friend, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I
4: I didn't look at any research that talked about the effect of online dating on this phenomenon specifically, but I definitely did look at a fair amount of research that talked about uh, women as tending to do things together kind of face to face or like, Hmm you know, interfacing together, talking to each other, even if it's on the phone or via Zoom. Whereas men tend to do things shoulder to shoulder, you know, sitting yeah. together and watching sports together, going on hikes, you know, doing kind of physical things. So, I mean, that would certainly kind of go along with what you're saying about how if someone's not physically there, it's maybe more challenging for men to make those connections.
0: But a significant way that men interact with each other now in a social uh, uh manner is, is video games uh, are a are a much much larger point uh, part of the male experience than they have been historically video games have gotten really good really compelling very narrative very sophisticated very technologically sophisticated uh, I play a lot of video games I don't play a lot of video games that are you know interactive that are online with other people but a lot of guys I know do and they're collaborative and social and you know friendly competition usually not always but uh, mm-hmm. I, that would be a dynamic I would point to as a friendship building thing, but maybe, I guess maybe dudes don't, don't, wouldn't, don't uh, label their video game buddies as like close friends, even though what they have is kind of a a close friendship. I don't know.
4: Yeah. I mean, that's certainly possible. I think, again, that's a great example of that kind of shoulder to shoulder activity that, Mm -hmm. you know, men are doing together, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to some of the things that popped up in my research, like talking about a personal problem or offering or receiving emotional support, you know, telling a friend that you love them. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You would have to tell me, but how much is <laughs> happening during the video
3: game play? How many
0: have I... I love you, man.
3: I love you, pwned. Uh, <laughs> Well, Look, it, it is it is difficult to maintain relationships. I think for everyone, and you point to the fact that this is a broader trend that's not exclusive to men. And I think that you know there is a kind of an unspoken amount of of labor that goes into coordinating times to get together, scheduling times for phone calls, doing all of that, especially as people get older and families and kids come into the mix. And I wonder, you know, what, if anything, people have thought about in terms of trying to improve upon this issue. If we do think it's an issue that's um, leading to, you know, suicidal ideation and unhappiness more broadly, what's there to be done? Yeah, well, you know, the sort of, secret sauce to
4: making lasting friendships is vulnerability so it's kind of being able to get in touch with yourself to question what you've been told is important you know to question what values you've been told are important for you to have and then think about which ones are serving you and which ones aren't and if there's things that are keeping you from building these friendships because you feel like you need to you know be stoic or show emotional fortitude you can make a choice to get rid of that. You can just remove that ideal from your brain, and instead you can choose to be vulnerable and make connections. You know, reach out to your friends. Make it a priority in your life.
3: Um, you know, all of those things are important. Hmm. Robbie, do you think that that's that's what's coming between? To the extent that there's any issue in keeping friends over the years, do you think it's it's your uh, lack of vulnerability among men that's the I issue? I mean, it's, it's.
0: I guess my experience is just very different. I mean, I live in a city. I live in a liberal city. I, I do actually go to the... Most of my friends are... I, I, I'm very close with my coworkers at both of my offices. Um, I'm married, so my wife and I have a lot of couple friends. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I guess I'm just not in the... Life situation that this increasing pool of young men find themselves in Like, I if you. So you're saying you a, have you,
3: six friends. Name them right now. Let's I go. definitely <laughs> have six friends.
0: Well, I don't know if I can Call name them. six Call friends. Them. I don't. us see if they pick up. No, I'm in. a am in a group thread of guys who. I. I but I guess we don't. Do we talk about emotionally vulnerable subjects? This is getting very personal. <laughs> I have a healthy number of friends. But again, I, I go into the office, I'm in a city, I see people a lot. If you just live at home, if you're not married or in a long term relationship, if you live with your parents, if you're not going out because of the pandemic, sure I could see how how you find yourself in a situation where you have where you would describe yourself as having few close male friends. Um which is a which is a bad thing. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and I do think not to gender stereotype, but I have some executive functioning issues where I find it to be very stressful the administration of getting people together and you know, there are studies that show that men tend to do less of that kind of administrative social work, whether it's, you know, housework or making doctor's appointments for kids and things like that. And and I do wonder if if the, bar, if the bar for men, the threshold for men of engaging in those kind of activities that are required to maintain relationships is so much higher, if that's just the first thing that's gonna fall on the wayside when you get overwhelmed, which again, I think is very understandable, but might be about kind of the difficulty of getting together and finding time in increasingly packed lives more than kind of the emotional failures of uh the less fair. Sex. Do do
0: men have more <laughs> more female I probably not, right? More female friends and that's why they have fewer well, male friends. Yeah. I mean it I, I mean, again in in my situation right, we have a lot of couple friends. A lot of our Social activities are mixed-gender social activities.
3: Yeah, the women are the women are doing some planning. Sounds like.
4: <laughs> yeah, and men who have female friends were more likely to have received emotional support from a friend in the last week, and also more likely to have had a friend tell them that they love them than mm. men who have only male friends. Mm.
3: Well, look, you've given us a lot to talk about and think about, Aubrey. I'm sure uh, we're going to keep this conversation going after this segment wraps, so we appreciate you spending this time with us today. I want to see the group chat.
0: (laughs) No, you do not. All right, we'll have more
3: rising right after this. we went to Brianna. We'll have more rising right after this. The state of Rhode Island is tackling the rent crisis through a new $10 million private program that will use COVID-19 stimulus money to build mixed-income public housing. As reported by Ricardo Gomez in The Lever, the pilot program is just one part of the state's Create Homes Act, which would use $300 million of American Rescue Plan Act funds to create a new state housing department, realigning public spending with a public good. Joining us now to expand on that is fellow at The Lever, Ricardo Gomez. Welcome to Rising.
5: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: Ricardo, help us understand what the experience of the housing crisis is right now, more broadly, but specifically in in Rhode Island. What are renters uh, up against?
5: Well, um, the situation in Rhode Island is is much like many places. Um, Rents are on the rise, and there's not a whole lot of relief. this is for a number of reasons, which is, uh, A, that the, any new housing units that are being built are, are being built at um, market rate. Uh, landlords are increasing uh, prices uh, without consultation. Um, a response is there's been um, a rise in tenant rights organizing, tenant unionization, but at the same time, um, landlords in Rhode Island have also been Forming um, basically lobbying groups to sort of combat that, combat those efforts. Um, yeah, this this is um, I don't know. I, I think I would say that this is a very similar experience uh, that people are facing in a lot of different places.
0: Okay. Right, well, how does uh, how does creating a new housing department help alleviate this problem?
5: Well, so uh, over the last couple of decades, the primary program for building affordable housing has been the low income housing tax credit program, uh, which largely gives private developers um, tax tax credits. So it incentivizes housing developers um, um, who are seeking profits to build housing. What, um, what the public developer program would do is equip the state um, to, to take over land planning, land acquisition, and the actual building of housing units. Um, This would mean that the way that we're organizing collectively to build housing is is not motivated by um, profits or by private developers seeking to get public resources, um, but instead is is for the goal of simply creating housing. So um, creating this um, public developer program, Um, Getting it off the ground through the pilot program is a step of creating like one coordinated uh, system of uh, creating housing for the public that isn't motivated or driven by profits, but um, for addressing a very basic need, which is the need for, for housing.
3: Well, can you help me understand why it is that the federal uh, housing program, the LIHC, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit program, is so susceptible to these uh, private developer interests but the state-level program won't be?
5: Yeah. Well, I would say with the LIHTCs, there's a fundamental misalignment of public spending and public good. I mentioned that in my piece. Um, Basically there's very little oversight of of these actors. The housing that they do build, which is supposed to be affordable, is um, has like expires um, like over 30 years. Uh, Any affordable housing that they build will will basically convert back into market housing. Um, the The difference is that under uh, a public developer model, um, the housing won't have expirability. Uh, Affordability will be. you know there will be more oversight about what what is actually considered affordable. would be geared towards workforce housing. Um, by by definition, like the LIHTC program is set out to incentivize people who are looking for profits, right? The the public developer program is is sort of made more democratic by allowing um, a public uh, entity, which you know is is. It's subject to the interests of, of people um, to oversee the building of, of the housing rather than letting um, private actors um, regulate things and drive things
3: it seems kind of wild that this federal program would have these obvious flaws in it if expirability is the issue why is that the why is that the case. If there are not the right incentives and conditions put on building that are actually motivating more low-income housing to be built as opposed to the for-profit, higher-income, more profitable housing, why is that not built in the federal program? You know, is it lobbying interest? Is it, you know, what, what, has there not been a lot of public scrutiny about uh, the, the LIHTC uh, model
5: yeah maybe i mean definitely public scrutiny but also there are a lot of money there are a lot of people getting a lot of money from um this program uh you know there were investigations done recently that saw that uh there the program is rife with corruption people take money that is supposedly going to be going to uh developing housing and will spend it on on dinners with clients um the, the the whole program um when when you have a program that is oriented around uh, letting private actors who are seeking profits determine something as basic as housing like there are just some fundamental problems there and you know this goes back to in the 30s and 40s when the federal government was initially expanding things like the the uh, like hud uh, building public housing That shifted in the 70s and in the neoliberal period to giving um, more control over housing to these private uh, private actors building the housing. So I don't know that shift is really important. Um, The lack of oversight is really important, but also just like the fundamental um, alignment of interests, which is they're seeking profits, not housing.
0: I don't know that, that I, I don't know about the situation in Rhode Island specifically but in other places where there is not enough housing a large or affordable housing a large contributor to that problem is just that there's not enough housing in general often because of zoning local uh, local actors who who oppose new development regardless of you know, what, if it's going to be affordable or not. Uh, an expansion of the housing supply would drive down uh, prices, even if, even if the new developments aren't specifically designated for affordable housing. Sometimes some aspect of them are affordable. Um, is there any, is there, I, I, Rhode Island's a very small state, at the local level, are there, are there you know, zoning actors and you know, histor- you know, historical preservation boards, that kind of thing, standing in the way of having more housing?
5: Well, um, something to respond to this, I think an important part of, of breaking down the public developer uh, model is that it would it would let the state or at the municipal level to um, to sort of coordinate the zoning laws that you're talking about. Um, there, there are a lot of like the, the developers have a lot of uh, interest in making sure that those zoning laws aren't designated to actually building affordable housing. Um, in Rhode Island in particular, uh, as people have been, as tenants have been organizing against rent spikes, against evictions, as I was saying earlier, um, different groups from mom and pop landlords to bigger developers um, also coordinate um, their lobbying interests to sort of prevent the, the changing of, of these zoning laws. Um, I guess I would focus on, on on talking about how the public developer program Um, allows all of these sorts of of rules to be brought under the purview of of one public entity. So under the the public developer, there would be tools for the state um, to review, for example, zoning and, uh, say, vacancies of of properties um, and either require uh, places to... provide a plan for the usage of this land or to put the land up for sale to uh, the state of Rhode Island. Um, so there's a, a sort of um, a mechanism there or tools to sort of address this this question that you're bringing up about um, zoning or about uh, where affordable housing can be built. Um, and it's sort of all folded in into what the public, public developer program uh, would do, which is to sort of uh, to efficiently build housing. Um, and Taking, taking control or at least having more say in the matter of, of zoning is a big step to that. In addition, having a, a public developer, having the government uh, step in uh, would mean that uh, the government wouldn't necessarily be held hostage to public developers who are uh, refraining from, from investing in, in building housing. Um, they, can, they can step in and, and uh, sort of drive that process.
0: I'm seeing the claim that Rhode Island has produced the least new housing supply per capita of any state in the country. It seems like a substantial part of the problem. Uh, Ricardo Gomez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll have more rising right after this.
6: The Chicago billionaire gave the largest known political donation to a political advocacy group in history worth $1.6 billion, according to new reporting from The Lever. 90-year-old Barry Said gave the massive sum to a nonprofit run by Leonard Leo, who co-chairs the conservative legal group The Federalist Society. Andrew Perez joins us now to discuss further. Andrew, welcome to Rising.
7: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
6: So Leonard Leo um, gave this, don- Leonard Leo's group actually put out a release, I think is the case, of announcing this donation, right? We're not just relying on reports. This is publicly, we know that the sum is $1.6 It's not straight to FedSoc. It's to another group that Leo started, right?
7: Yeah, yeah. So um, the $1.6 billion is reflected in the first tax return released by uh, this new group from uh, Leonard Leo called the Marble Freedom Trust. We've um, we've been working on this story, uh, the Lever team in ProPublica for for quite a while, um, looking at um, some documents that we were given um, showing the transaction, uh, detailing how this money went from this uh, Chicago uh, billionaire uh, Barry Side to the Marble Freedom Trust, and and how they um, you know sort of gamed the tax code to maximize the the most amount of money here. Um, so Barry's side actually donated um, his entire company, um, this company called Triplate, uh, this electronics and surge protector manufacturer. Um, for he donated the entire company, put it into this trust, which then sold the company for 1.6 billion dollars. And by handling it that way, it, it it helped him avoid probably up to 400 million dollars in taxes, and it maximized the amount of money that's now at the uh, disposal of Leonard Leo.
8: And so I wanna to get to the substance of all this in a second, but I'm fascinated by the reporting process as well. Did, did they hear footsteps? Did they know that you were about to publish? Did you go to them for comment and then all of a sudden they announced it publicly? Or how did, mm. how did all this unfold?
7: We honestly do not know what happened. Um, <laughs> we, just, we just know the New York Times had a, had a story. Um, it sounded like they had heard from some people in the, in the Leo orbit. Um, so, yeah, we, we woke up to that Monday and we, uh, you know, decided it was time to uh, also race our stories uh, story out as well.
6: So the, the Federal Society is probably the most well-known of the groups that Leo operates. And uh, there's, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse likes to get out his board and do the sort of Charlie Day, um, you know, the, the conspiracy theory thing, uh, the Pepe, Pepe Silva thing. But um, what do we know about Marble Freedom Trust uh, now that it has $1.6 billion? Uh, that's an incredible sum of money. And what do we know about what Leo's plans for that particular group are? Are they to provide grants to other different organizations Organizations? Are they going to be doing their own types of initiatives? What's Marble Freedom Trust up to?
7: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you know what we've seen from the tax return is it's uh, helping finance Leo's kind of existing network um, already. Um, and so I would I would expect the money to be passed around both within his network and outside it. Um, you know, they they now kind of have the money to really expand um, his his conservative vision here. Um, you know, so obviously, I guess I should say that uh, Leo was Trump's judicial advisor, uh, played a a key role in selecting uh, in, in making uh, or determining the current makeup of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and designing it to overturn abortion rights. Um, I, I believe that this is sort of. Uh, an effort to expand their, their, uh, their reach. And, you know, the thing about this kind of money is, um, you know, you you can spend it over time. If, if they're, if they're uh, smart with it, they can really just kind of spend it over time and, you know, maybe not even tap into the kind of uh, original principle if, uh, if, if they invest right.
8: And Emily, I want to ask you more of this because like who, who's Leonard Leo and like, what are they going to do with this money? Like, uh, And were you surprised? You're like, wow, this is a lot of money, and this can transform what they do? Or you're like, well, they already have a ton of money, and this will just make them a little bit more supercharged.
6: This is a a truly incredible sum of money, and I'm sure Andrew can speak to that, too, covering this sort of thing. I mean, I sort of work in the conservative movement. I work for a conservative movement group uh, part-time. Similarly
8: named, but not connected. Uh, Oh, the Federalist.
6: Yeah, I also work for Young America's Foundation's Mm -hmm. National Journalism Center, part-time. And uh, Leonard Leo is a really well-respected man in the conservative movement, been around for years. And on the heels of the Trump administration, getting three justices confirmed, it's not entirely surprising that he's where a huge sum of money is going because that, you know, if, you, if you're in the conservative sort of donor circles, I imagine is a huge selling point. Look at he's what I can do with All the right. funding, right? Yeah, so, but but $1.6 and Andrew, we can uh, toss this one to you, what, like, just talk to us about where that sum stands in, in sort of average political donations, or not political, like donations to groups like this, which I imagine is a, a C3 or C4, um, on both the right and the left, because it's true there are huge funders of particular causes on the left as well, absolutely no question about it, even to dark money groups. Um, but $1.6 billion is, is a pretty unbelievable sum.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as best we can tell to date, Leo's kind of existing network, not counting the Federalist Society, had raised about four hundred and sixty million dollars since since 2005, which is, again, not a small sum. But, you know, this is nearly four times that. Um, And then, you know, how it compares kind of within the within the kind of liberal and conservative movements. The closest comparisons would be, you know, there was like this $1.5 billion donation to a George Soros group called the Fund for Policy Reform. Um, More recently, there was a $1.2 billion donation to a nonprofit um, that's uh, run by Chase Koch, who's uh, Charles Koch's son. Um, And so this, you know, exceeds those. Clearly, Barry Sy didn't have that level of money, um, but he did manage to package his entire company into you know the biggest one-time donation that we've ever seen
9: mm-hmm.
8: yeah it's a, it's a windfall staggering <laughs> just a staggering amount of money and and maybe emily would be able to answer this too but so w- once he's successfully overturned roe v wade and then he's taking abortion rights back to the states where it will be fought over there is this money then going to f- flood into state legislative races somehow so that Republicans can then pick up state legislatures and then they can ban abortion you know, in places that haven't banned it yet? Is that, is that the vision or what, what's your sense of where this is headed?
7: Um, well, so you know, the Leo Network has been the, the biggest kind of long-term financier of the Republican Attorneys General Association. I would assume that you would see some of this flood into those races. Um, you know, They've also been active in state Supreme Court races in, in the past. Um, they have funded the Republican Governors Association a bit. They have donated some to the Republican State Leadership Committee. I do think you're going to see more um, some state level spending from uh, Leo-affiliated groups. I mean, you know, we saw some some of that in um, the the Kansas abortion fight. Um, one of those groups that was attempting to uh, overturn uh, Kansas sort of uh, constitutional right to an abortion. Is this group called catholic vote they've they've long been you know tied to to the leo network they haven't gotten a ton of money from them in the past but um you know they did drop five hundred thousand dollars into this uh super PAC run by uh former kansas congressman uh tim huelskamp um that uh, they're they're the group that actually sent those text messages to every single Kansan, um so like these really misleading text messages trying to get out the uh, get, get out the vote there um around the abortion measure
6: the cat it's interesting because uh, when Dobbs came to the court and there's that waiting period, um, it, a lot of people on the right were actually very anxious that the sort of FedSoc approved judges were not going to be uh, the the right people to overturn Roe and that they would um, flake basically, and, and so there there was some sort of skepticism I think of the the Federalist Society crowd at that point and Leonard Leo at that point. Obviously, those fears turned out to uh, not be uh, in, entirely well placed on the right, uh, but all that is to say. Andrew. uh, Another element of this, perfectly legal, um, but you can probably explain how this donation uh, was structured in a way uh, to minimize any taxes that would be owed. Uh, From my understanding, everything that was done was just within the tax code, but within the tax code when you have uh, lawyers who can help you stay within the tax code.
7: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the transaction here is pretty incredible. Um, So, by putting the uh, this this company into a nonprofit, Side was able to avoid four hundred million in taxes, we believe, up to that that amount. Um, that money then got to, because this is a tax exempt group, it all just stayed with the nonprofit. There wasn't there was no tax on on the sale here. And you can you I mean you know that for a fact too, because you know the company was sold for one point six billion dollars and that's how much money went into the Marble Freedom Trust.
8: Mm-hmm. Great four hundred million dollar subsidy for the yep. federal society, basically wonderful. Well, a lot isn't, isn't more that, than that. Isn't that
6: sweet? Yeah, it's. I mean, he, These groups are. It's, it's a very multifaceted kind of network. There's a lot of groups right, doing right. different things. Um, and we're but, spreading.
8: We're spreading the tax dollars around. Definitely yeah. spread We're spreading love all over the right wing network. Wonderful. It's so so nice of us. Yeah. How generous of the Give some, yeah. some to the
6: vast left wing conspiracy That's next funny. time, Barry. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for your time and for your reporting. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.
0: As CNN seeks to reinvent itself amidst flatlining ratings, viewers unhappy with the network's rebrand voiced their dissatisfaction this week causing the hashtag BoycottCNN to trend on Twitter. One jaded CNN viewer tweeted, quote, Good morning to everyone who agrees that if CNN has consciously decided to push Republican positions, it's time to boycott CNN. I'm watching MSNBC exclusively now. (laughs) Joining us now to weigh in on the network's growing pains is host of The Katie Halper Show and co-host of Useful Idiots podcast, Katie Halper. Welcome.
9: Hi, welcome. And that of course was Brooklyn Dad Defiant, who is a paid, a compensated, um, what's the what's the non offensive term for troll? bot. Uh, chill. Bot, chill. Uh, was that right? com- that was Russell commentator? Were you hearing directly
0: no. from Russia itself there?
9: <laughs> to tell me that to, with high yeah. as the as the Russia shell, yes, yeah. But what? Well, who did he work for? Some DNC affiliated organization? That was an interesting. So that's an interesting one to. Yeah, he's a prolific tweeter, punch.
3: and and that's part of what makes the posture of this so interesting. Oh, this is Katie. the Brooklyn debt.
9: I have seen this one. It's yeah, yeah
0: aggressively yeah. resistency. Yes, like yeah. anti. So cringe. Left. Like it's yeah. enjoyable and entertaining. Yeah, ma- yeah, a, yeah. major
9: major pu- uh, left punching. Uh, yes. not really good of a ch- paying child support either. Oh, Katie,
0: <laughs> well,
3: look, this, right. this, is, this is- The a, first
0: th- flag in his Twitter bio, the Ukraine flag, not surprised.
3: <laughs> <laughs> to Ativa, to look, Katie, anyway. this is what's so interesting for people who see the, the left as a monolith to understand the posture oh, here. Yeah. Because in right. some ways, CNN is being pushed to the left by people who are only maybe marginally to the left of the coverage that's being offered there from our perspective, people who think of MSNBC as the height of what should be progressive coverage, you know, working class coverage in the United States of America. You know, so how should people who are, I think, more sincerely invested in having more representative coverage, how how should we approach this? Is this this a boon for the left or ultimately just a call for CNN to go back into uh, the same Style that MSNBC is in.
9: Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting example of how, once again, the terms left and right can be kind of limiting, and what does the left mean? Mm. But just for context, in terms of what happened specifically here, so um, CNN was bought out by Discovery, which is now uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Discovery's leading individual shareholder and uh, board member is John Malone, who's a libertarian. He is a Trump donor, uh, he is a Fox News fan. And he actually said in an interview, he said, I would like to see CNN evolve back to the kind of journalism that it started with and actually have journalists, which would be unique and refreshing. Fox News, in my opinion, has followed an interesting trajectory of trying to have news news. I mean, some actual journalism embedded in a program schedule of all opinions. So that's the, the new uh, ownership, basically. Right now, Discovery's CEO is David Z- Zaslov. And he has said that he wants CNN to be different from "quote unquote" advocacy networks. Now, CNN's new president, Chris Licht, had told the staff his st- staff to stop using the term "the big lie" to describe Trump's lie that the mm. election was stolen. And uh, the New York Times reported that Licht told staff he wanted to book more Republicans and conservatives on political shows to offer a wider. Range of viewpoints. Note, by the way, it's not that he wants to actually book any actual progressives, but that's another point. The AP reported that Licht made it known internally he's not interested in conflict between CNN and Fox News on the network. And uh, the CNN New Day anchor Brianna Taylor had uh, attracted attention for detailed critical pieces on Fox, but they have stopped since Licht took over. So this all kind of came to a head for a couple of reasons, but one of the big things that happened is that Brian Stelter and his show Reliable Sources was canceled. And the ratings weren't that great, but they were actually better than other shows on the network. So it probably was not about the ratings. And this is something that there's a a good um, op-ed in The Guardian by Robert Reich, uh, which says some stuff that I, so I don't agree with all of it, but I agree with some of it. And he points out that this wasn't a commercial decision. Um, and Stelter was, to be fair, he was very frequently critical of Fox. Um, he also was critical of CNN. Uh, he did really, and they're and moved to oust Zucker, who was the president before Licht, and he really glowed, uh, raved about Zucker. It was a little weird, talked about how Zucker would like go to war for people and had it was a big heat shield. But anyway, uh, he wrote in his newsletter that Malone's comments about Fox, quote, stoked fears that discovery might stifle CNN journalists and sear away from calling out indecency and injustice, and he said, the people who say that the Zucker era CNN was lacking in real journalism clearly were not watching CNN directly. My best guess is that they were watching Talking Heads and reading columnists complaining, columnists complaining about CNN. And yes, I'm including John Malone in this. So he was, you know, I mean, that was a little risky. And I, I admire that he said that and that he was critical of the people who were basically uh, the new bosses of the network. And he was critical of Trump and he was critical of CNN. But he also, we should be clear, was not a very uh critical in general voice. He was, you know, he pushed Russiagate. He was pro-war. He was, you know, very much supportive of the Biden administration. Now, I do think that this new leadership of CNN means that the the network is moving even more to the right. But we should also acknowledge that CNN has a pretty disgraceful recent history. Ironically, they played a huge role in um, promoting Trump with tons of free airtime. There are these famous examples of pathetic examples of CNN cutting from a Bernie speech, to be fair, so do other networks, but they cut from a Bernie speech to go to Trump's open, uh, empty podium. Uh-huh. He wasn't there, but they wanted to make sure they were there before he got there, I guess. They also, instead of um, uh, CNN, instead of broadcasting a Hillary Clinton speech on unions, they were at Trump's empty podium. And Trump himself said, I get better press from CNN than I do Fox. Now, there are other examples of CNN being egregiously unethical, as we probably know. Uh, Donna brazil who worked at C- was a CNN regular gave uh the Clinton campaign debate questions ahead of time um there was a very bad anti-Bernie bias and uh, there was even a protest called Occupy CNN because it was so uh terrible and um so now we have this boycott uh CNN hashtag that's gone kind of viral but uh, what's interesting is that a lot of people are pledging their like undying loyalty uh to MSNBC and MSNBC ironically for people who claim to be left MSNBC has basically like created a uh, RNC to MSNBC pipeline right so who do you have at MSNBC you have Joe Scarborough who is a who's a host who is a republican congressman you have um, Nicole Wallace, who is the White House communications director for George W. Bush, she was also an advisor for the John McCain campaign. Regular guests include uh, Iraq War architects like Bill Right, uh, right? Crystal David right. From McCain campaign manager Steve Schmidt is on regular. Jennifer Rubin, who's like a reactionary Islamophobe, whose column at the Post is called Right Turn. So what these people have in common with these are some these are
0: some not terrific uh, uh, sort of people. Uh, Yeah, Jennifer Rubin is the most widely mocked opinion writer on planet Earth. Uh, Right. She's the Washington Post conservative, but her, her stuff. Like, she is more uh, uh, effusively praising of the Biden administration than, like, like, uh, like the Biden press secretary. Like it's, yeah. it's just every one of her columns is another beautiful, brilliant move by our perfect president. It's, yeah. uh, it's truly, it's truly incredible stuff. And, 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 and obviously, and, and then Steve Schmidt, you know, compromised by the, the, the Lincoln Project grift, all that. Right. Uh, something serially yeah. rewarded on, uh, on MSNBC primarily. I think they're more on MSNBC yeah. than anywhere else.
9: And what this speaks to is that this isn't about left, right. It's about how much you actually yeah. and actively hate Trump. I mean, that's a metric mm-hmm. that's relevant, but it's not the only metric. And this is the thing that like drawings all these people together. And, you know, Jennifer Rubin is someone who called like Obama racist, you know, very, was a- very anti-abortion and uh, a very vitriolic, uh, very vitriolic in her, in her descriptions of Barack yeah. Obama. So it's interesting, but basically what this comes down to is that uh, MSNBC, like CNN, all of these places, they suffer from a really pro-war bias and a really corporate bias. And MSNBC fired Phil Donahue because he was critical of the Iraq war, even though he was doing great in ratings. They told Jesse Ventura, who they were going to have a show with, that he couldn't criticize the Iraq war, so he didn't do the show. They fired Ed Schultz, who was one of the people who actually talked to uh, Bernie Sanders. They were notorious in their anti-Bernie bias. And This boycott, what this does is it kind of whitewashes, I think, the rest of corporate media, because I don't think I think it's right to point out the, the kind of creeping right wingism of CNN. But it's also important to say that this attempt to be fair and balanced and centered, the center is not the center of the country. It's the center of the Beltway. Right. Or it's the center of Wall Street. Well, and, and there's a center.
0: Uh, I, I think there's a center sometimes on balance, but it, it there's different. Like there's a there's a there's a social and kind of cultural left or progressive viewpoint that is very well you know very well represented on uh, MSNBC and to some extent CNN because of the kind of cultural circles of the people who are on it, which is not at all the same as an economic left or a foreign policy right. left. Right, exactly. It's, it's just totally. Center, I, I understand that these are different things because I'm in conversation with, with you guys all the time, but right. that's something that others on the right kind of admit They go, oh yeah, it's so far left. It's a, well, it's, it, it's left in, a, in an Elizabeth Warren sense, but it's left in a cultural sense. Cult- it's not yeah, left sure. at all on foreign policy and it's right. not actually left in the way that a lot of working class people care about.
9: Right. It's not economically left. It's not economically even centrist, I would say. And it's not foreign policy left. It's not even foreign policy centrist. And that is the danger of this thing is that making it look like CNN is exceptionally uh, right wing really obfuscates the way that the alleged center is is distorted. And we can't have the center be a place where you have like, you know, Joe Scarborough yucking it up with uh, Mayor Eric Adams. And I think this actually this out of touchness and this kind of, oh, we're all socially progressive and, and uh, on cultural issues, which I think is good. But while totally being um, blind to the way that uh, Americans are suffering and people in other countries are suffering because of our our foreign policy, people are suffering here and abroad because of our foreign policy and economic policies, that kind of out of touchness and that kind of like chummy cocktail circleness is really a beltway insider approach to the news and corporate media that is so alienating to people i think makes the conditions for another trump ironically yeah and, and actually even though i obviously support you know most of the kind of cultural social agenda
3: on those kinds of shows i do think that really emphasizing those kinds of things at the same time that you demonstrate a real indifference to populist economic issues, to anti-interventionism, to a lot of these, I think, bedrock left issues, causes people to yes. think you're uncredible and then resent the interests that are being represented by the cultural the cultural conversation right. and feeling like, well, it's a zero-sum game. Obviously, you couldn't possibly care about my issues if all you want to do is talk about, you know, black people or gay people or whatever it is. And it ends up right. actually hurting the interest of historically marginalized groups. but Right. That's because they're other-
9: presenting those things as mutually exclusive as opposed right. to part of the same struggle. And, and instead right. of presenting, like, really what we're seeing is not identity politics, it's the weaponization of identity Correct. politics. And these people pretend that things like economic justice are not racial justice issues. Obviously they are. And they are, as you're saying, they're creating a false dichotomy. And this is really dangerous because it alienates people. And we are creating more potential Trump supporters so that's right. my but cnn if you want to make your show better and less uh right wing or you want to have more diversity there are people you could hire i mean i'm i'm i have my own shows but i'm also willing to take on more <laughs> You're stuff right here first. i'm located i'm located <laughs> in new york city you don't have to pay to put me up or any travel or anything so yeah
3: katie Halper is available cnn everybody co-op the hashtag and say hi katie Halper." katie thank yes, you as always for joining katie us Helper. here on the hill thanks for having me And we'll have more arising for you after this. In late 2020 and early 2021, at what was then the height of the pandemic, friend of the show Maximilian Alvarez conducted a series of intimate interviews with workers of all stripes from all around the United States. Those conversations documented in Max's new book, The Work of Living, Working People Talk About Their Lives in the Year the World Broke, painted deeply human history of one of the defining events of the 21st century told by the people
0: who lived it. Friend of the show and Editor-in-Chief of The Real News Network, Max Alvarez, joins us now to discuss. Welcome back to Rising.
10: Thanks so much for having me, guys.
0: Yeah, we're uh, happy to have you, and I, we, uh, Ryan and I were co-hosting the show. Uh, we talked to you a little bit about uh, this book, but we only got uh, you know, just this deep into it. So let's pick up you know, that conversation, and the audience can, uh, can, should definitely go check out um, uh, the first video. You know, tell us another story of the kind of uh, person you interviewed for this book.
10: Yeah, I mean, uh, again, thank you so much for, for having me on to talk about it the first time and this time. And I apologize to everyone that that first time that we talked about it, I gave a lot of like discussion about the motivation of the book. But I didn't get to focus on the meat of the book, which is the workers, right? The workers stories. I'm, I'm, I'm like a broken record every time I'm on this show or another show. I always say, don't listen to me. Listen to the workers. Right. So if you buy this book, which I hope that you do, I hope that people read it. Um, you know, you will find interviews with 10 different um, workers from around the country working in different types of industries coming from different walks of life and all of whom experience, you know, in different ways the, the onset of COVID-19 um, and, you know, I really wanted to try to have these interviews be like the ones that I do on my podcast, Working People, right? And, and the focus of that has always been, you know, on the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of our fellow workers. And Because I want people to understand that there's so much more to Working People than just a name tag or a job title, right? I, there, there's so much history and heart there. And you see that in these interviews. You know, I speak to Nick, a, a grave digger in New Jersey, Who talks about his experience burying people um, in the first uh, months of COVID-19 and how the number of burials exploded by like a factor of three and he describes what it was like to work in that environment what it was like to navigate the grief uh, of other families the fear that he had of contracting this virus but also you know he's a human being he talks about the skepticism that he had um, about the media and and you know it's reporting on COVID-19. I wanted All of that raw human stuff to make it in the book and i think that if you read these stories you see first you know again just just how deep and complex and beautiful and valuable every single human life is but on top of that you realize how much hard work it took to keep society afloat during COVID-19 pandemic when, you know, the other systems that we had entrusted to take care of us were in fact failing us, whether that was the unemployment system that had been hollowed out and, cr- and like, buckled in the early days of COVID-19, whether that was, you know, a PPP program that just basically ended up being bosses stealing a bunch of money from taxpayers and not paying, you know, workers to stay on the payroll like they were supposed to, whether that be Companies like Amazon making a marketing ploy out of calling their workers heroes and granting them hero pay, and then suddenly ripping that away just weeks later, even though workers continued to work and die in those warehouses right you you really get i think a ground level sense of what working people went through during this horrific time but you also see just how heroic people are on an everyday level how much love and care it took from our neighbors and our co-workers and family members to keep this from being worse than it actually was. People brought food to each other. People found ways to be in connection with each other, even if it was virtually, right? We found so many ways to take care of each other because ultimately we are all we have. And I think that that really comes through in the book. You see, like I said, all of the essential labor that people do on a day-to-day basis to keep society afloat. And I just want people to always remember that and to carry that lesson forward uh, into the future.
3: Yeah, yeah, Max, It's it's been a really interesting week because there's been a discussion about working people and in some ways um whether or not they benefit from this newest policy from joe biden and the student debt cancellation and there's a lot of jockeying as there is in many political contexts to speak for working people and i think all of us myself included could do a lot better to have people from different kinds of economic backgrounds in particular interviewed directly on these kinds of shows i know that i personally I'm so grateful for having a call in show where I do get to talk to people outside of my own bubble on a, on a at least bi weekly basis. But I wonder what you make of some of the, the tenor of the conversations that get had, where a lot of people, all of us who are, many of us who are in the situation where we're able to be newscasters and journalists and, and speak for others and write about others, aren't necessarily from the milieu that we are representing. And I wonder, when you're talking to people and they're telling you in an apolitical way about their experiences and what they want without the, the gloss that comes with you know, news coverage, how do you reconcile how they're being presented in the media and how they're seeing themselves? And to what extent do the kind of typical political frames that we all work with end up emerging as you're trying to elicit these stories?
10: It's a great question, and you know, it is a, a difficult task, right? And I guess I would just say up front that you know, like, you know, media personalities and journalists are not inherently bad. We need you know journalists doing this work. We need I'm folks like. You there, Max. <laughs> <laughs> i was about to pay you both a compliment uh. <laughs> a point but like you know like we all yeah have a role to play some of the workers that i interviewed watch this show and mm. they told me that they re- like when i reached out to them they were like oh i know you i watch rising mm. right so there is you know important stuff there but i would say for all of us as i've been beating this drum you know for years now um you know it is not our place to ventriloquize working people it is our responsibility to lift up the voices and struggles of working people by letting them speak for themselves i said this on uh your show brie and i was very grateful to have the opportunity to do so my editorial strategy whether it was when i was an editor at the chronicle of higher education now editor-in-chief at the real news network or host of my podcast working people or now author of this book My editorial strategy uh, uh, and my editorial duty is let the rabble in, let people speak for themselves, give people the opportunity to hear directly from their fellow workers about what they're going through, how they're making sense of the world around them. And I think that, you know, a lot of people in the media don't want to do that because they know, in fact, that like their own agenda might be upended if working people are actually let in the room and given the opportunity to refute their B.S., talking points. And I think that one of the things that I'm really proud of in this book is that I I do give people the space to say their piece, right? I don't try to steer people, you know, like into a political territory that I think that they need to be in. There are a lot of views expressed by the workers I talk to that I don't personally agree with, but that wasn't the point of the mm-hmm. book. The point of the book was to capture them and their lives and their impressions. And so, you know, I am going to constantly be on this crusade to get outlets, to have working people write op-eds, interview working people for longer than just a two-minute soundbite because, again, there is so much more to us. And I will also doggedly pursue and and berate other uh, uh, um, pundits who feel that they have been deputized to speak for working people without actually giving working people the chance to speak for themselves. And like you said, Bree, that was very apparent as we were discussing the the student um, debt, cancellation thing. I think a lot of pundits were telling on themselves and showing that in fact, they don't know a whole lot of workers because they were saying, oh, no working person has student debt. It's all elites who go to like Ivy covered campuses. Man, i worked at, you know, as a temp in a warehouse 10 years ago in Southern California. I had a lot of student debt from one of those Ivy covered campuses, the University of Chicago. I was a first generation uh, student to, to attend that along with my siblings. And when I was at that warehouse, I didn't want to talk about my debt because I thought that that was the case, that I was the only one who had it. Then over smoke breaks, I realized that I was working alongside a lot of people who had also accrued a lot of debt because they had been taken advantage of by predatory programs at DeVry, ITT Tech, and all of these for-profit kind of programs hmm. that, that have screwed people. It, it, it just, again, if you if you were out there honestly saying that, you know, we shouldn't cancel debt because it actually doesn't, you know, working people don't hold that debt. Yes, they do. And you would know that if you actually just talk to people. Hmm. Hmm.
3: Hmm. Well, thank you, Max. I really always very sincerely appreciate your insights uh, wherever you give them. And I look forward to reading your new book. Thanks, guys. Here it is. The Work of Living by Maximilian Alvarez. Check it out. Uh, Where can people get it, Max?
10: So um, people can uh, buy it from uh, the books website. It is now officially out, so you can ask your local bookstore to stock it. You can buy it through your favorite independent bookstore. If you absolutely have to buy it through Amazon, you know, that's your prerogative. (laughs) I'm not going to berate you for that. But it is available everywhere. And again, there's just so many people. If I can just give one quick shout-out, Nick the Gravedigger in New Jersey Willie, a gig worker in Texas. Kyle, a sheet metal worker in Louisville. Pucks, a a burlesque performer in Seattle. There are so many amazing people in this book who I'm so grateful to for talking to me about it. And I hope that people read their stories and lift them up. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Max. Thank you.
0: Social media users are reporting that eBay is locking the accounts of users who sell over $600 worth of products until they submit their social security number for IRS reporting. The notice on eBay reads, As of January 1st, 2022, the IRS now requires us to file and send a 1099-K form to everyone who sells $600 or more. Please update your information so we can start sending your payouts and avoid other account restrictions. According to the New York Post, only 4% of the agency's $80 billion in new funding will go to customer service despite their pledge to use the cash to, quote,
3: help taxpayers. According to the Washington Post, the bigger scandal is that right-wing threats against agents have been mounting. The Post reports that the IRS has launched a full security review. Post reporter Jacob Bogage writes, quote, the attacks on the IRS, other agencies, and federal employees make sense if delegitimizing government is the point. Meanwhile, Post columnist Dana Milbank for the opinion section says questioning the agency is part of the rights- fascism problem, quote, violent anti-government rhetoric from party leaders targets the FBI, the Justice Department, and the IRS, as a systemic campaign of disinformation makes their supporters feel victimized by shadowy elites.
0: It's a very bad and lazy column. Yeah, targeting how dare we criticize the FBI, the Justice Department, the IRS. We were were criticizing the FBI in our A block today because there's a lot of uh, sketchy stuff regarding how they
3: handled the the Hunter Biden probe. Well, let's be a little bit specific, though, because I do think that, obviously, all of these organizations, any government organization or otherwise, has a mixed record and is— subject to critique, I think part of the concern that people have, and I want to know what you think about this, is about the kind of rhetoric that's come out of the right that really emphasizes the minority of IRS agents that carry firearms and really uh, implies that there are going to to be raids, kind of FBI-style raids on the homes of American citizens, and that American citizens should, in effect... Arm up and start targeting FBI agents the way we've already seen FBI agents target since the Mar-a-Lago oh, okay, incident.
0: Fine, I, I didn't think the right. There was some suggestion that they're going to be armed IRS agents. To me, that was not the concerning thing about the new news. I, I generally don't freak out when people <laughs> have guns. I, I people should be allowed to have guns. I'm I'm not a gun control supporter as we talked about in <laughs> other contexts. So that didn't trigger me the way it, it triggered some people. Mm-hmm. I, I take your point on that. The, right, the scary thing about the IRS is not that they're going to shoot you. They're they're going to make your life more difficult by tying you up in more procedures. They're, they're going to make it harder for people who, who earn a living doing a case, you know, not I just work a 9-to-5 mm-hmm. job, but I make my income. Maybe I I do ride share sometimes. Maybe I make stuff and sell it on eBay. On eBay Maybe I yeah. do all these various things. Yeah. And the concern is the IRS is ha- adding a lot of muscle. It's saying it's adding muscle so it can really get those rich sons of, sons of a gun who can you know, screw people who don't yeah. pay their fair share of the taxes. But as we've seen previously, it's so much easier for the IRS to go after you, to make but your that's, life that's more difficult. But that's complicated,
3: Robbie. Like, I, I know, it's a chicken-and-egg problem. I'm sympathetic to that argument. I, and then when we first started talking about it on the show, you know, you can go back and listen. I was very sympathetic to that. But I also think we have to reckon with the, the numbers that we have and the statistics that we have, which are the best thing that I think we can do, to predict what's going to happen with the Uh, increased funding. And the funding increases that are being proposed or that have been passed in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act are literally returning the IRS to the numbers that it had 10 years ago. And when you look back to what the IRS did 10 years ago, it did much, much more. I forget the the actual Mm -hmm. percentage number, but overwhelmingly more enforcement among elites and holding them accountable for their taxes than they do now. And part of the argument that's being made by the IRS now is that they focus on lower income cases because those are easier cases. Rich people Mm -hmm. have lawyers. It's protracted litigation. They have accountants. They know how to hide their money and cover their tracks, and it requires more resources to do so. I mean, what do you make of that?
0: So- there's two arguments I want to toss you away, see what you make of them so one one thing i 've heard uh, that i 've heard other libertarian people make is that regardless of how much i r s enforcement you have or, or what you or how you tinker or change the whatever you're doing, the government basically collects about nineteen percent of GDP in taxes, no matter what we do and and that's basically all they can. They can. That's all the money they can wring out of people. Well, how
3: Can you say no matter what we do, and we've seen a well historically, swing in what there's it,
0: not been a massive swing in how much money. But there, th- th- but there th- has th- that's been a what, meaningful
3: change in what the IRS has been able to collect, especially mm-hmm. from rich people, over the, just the last ten years, depending on how much how well they're funded.
0: The other thing would be. So my argument would be: we need to. We clearly m- need to make the tax code simpler 100%. because it is so confusing. Um, and it's more confusing, the, the, the fact that it's confusing rather, impacts um, at people with less financial means 100%. more because wealthy people can afford tax attorneys to to legally not pay their, t- I mean, they're, they're it's, yes, it's and, not they're and not and all the doing, tax, committing crimes. They, they're doing things that are perfectly legal. Yes, and
3: they spend their right. money to lobby to make sure that right. we don't simplify the tax The government knows how much you owe every month. That's how they I do it every, every Why year. Why can't they just tell us? They could just tell <laughs> us. But they the very rich people right. spend a lot of money to make sure that that doesn't happen, and all of the. Banks and tax preparers also spend a lot of money lobbying to make sure that their services don't become obsolete.
0: Yeah. So this this is true. the problem.
3: It this, is a huge problem. I mean, my problem. taxes
0: are. I mean, I'm a privileged person. You're probably like this too, though. If, if you have freelance income, if you yeah. have a variety of income sources, which a lot of you know journalists and media figures do, it starts to get darn complicated. Yeah, this is the
3: first year that I'm going to really have to be dealing with that. I'm not looking forward that's, to it. It's
0: a mess. <laughs> it's an absolute mess. Right.
3: So I think we're we're in agreement on that. That there there is some tinkering happening here around the edges. That is, uh, you know. El- eluding the bigger problem yeah. here, and that I think that elites in both parties don't really want to reckon with that. I do think we have to take a little bit of a wait and see approach to see what happens with the staffing up of IRS agents. If it is true that they come after little people like folks spending $600 on eBay Mm -hmm. and don't go after the big dogs, I will be right there with you objecting and we should keep an eye on this and have accountability. But I also think we have to deal with this. This is from um, Representative Andrew Clyde um, from Georgia this month on the House floor. He says, think about it. If the left weaponize the FBI to raid President Trump's personal residence, they will surely weaponize the IRS's new 87,000 agents, many of whom will be trained in the use of deadly force to go after any American citizen. You know, uh, Rick Scott, uh, chairman of the National Senatorial Committee, uh, says um, IRS hires will need to be ready to... uh, uh, the sorry, the IRS's words, sorry, the IRS needs to be ready to audit and investigate your fellow hardworking Americans, your neighbors and your friends. You need to be ready and to use the IRS words willing to kill them. I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric that the, the article is pushing back on. And whatever I think about how the IRS could be weaponized against poor people, is this an issue that we have representatives well, talking I, in these violent I, terms about members, American citizens and, and people who work for the government? Okay.
0: Yes, the right-wing rhetoric from a lot of Republicans has gotten totally out of control I find it I find it off-putting and weird. I don't even think it's tactically smart because it clearly turns people off um, the kinds of you know I, I did that radar on the rhino hunting ad from yeah. that deranged Missouri uh, failed candidate. yes, it's uh, it's very bad in in uh, right-wing political spheres that there's a reward from a certain, Part of the base, so there's a there's a dopamine hit on social media from activating your like craziest followers. Mm-hmm. It's just not representative of how most people feel about it, and it has it has encouraged a lot of people to go way too far in how they talk about these things. These things. That that said, and that aside, I don't I don't think it is not wrong to cast <laughs> to cast aspersions on law enforcement. I mean, that's something sure. the that left does. That's 100%. something the that left does all the time, and I'm right there with them saying that uh, the police have too much power and abuse that power and and harm citizens sometimes in a in a, a racially insensitive or racially discriminatory way and like I agree with all that
3: and if Ayanna Presley gets on TV and says the the cops the pigs are coming for you you got to arm up and be willing to kill them what would the response be the, from the, the right? response
0: would be as she said she shouldn't, if she said literally that, that would be pretty bad. I mean, she should this not is, say that. This,
3: this, yeah. is, this is the, I was going to say the subtext, but it's pretty much the text text of what's being said by not all, but some conservatives. Yeah. And I, I do think there is some legitimacy in asking whether or not there are going to be bad down, downstream effects from that kind of rhetoric.
0: Yes, but okay, but there is bad downstream, we, we can't, There are ba- there's bad downstream effects of, it, it's it's hard. To, the other side does that a lot, too. I, they honestly do. I mean, there's, there's extreme rhetoric on both sides, and I think it's often very lazy to draw, like, well, this is why there's more violence because people you. say those things. But when a should sitting, they, they should not say it because it's not appropriate, period.
3: When, when a sitting progressive or moderate Democrat starts talking about people arming up to shoot and, and be willing to kill uh, federal employees... I think we'll we'll be in a in a similar t- tit for tat case, but this does feel like an escalation of the likes of which we haven't seen from our sitting congressional representatives. That's that's all I'm saying. The that. underlying concerns about the IRS, I'm perfectly willing to entertain, but I do think that this represents you know this and ongoing rhetoric, rhetoric has shifted. always
0: been pretty. I, there was maybe a period of time when we were much younger where. There was a lot less, I, I guess, anger in our uh, political uh, system. But right, the things that can't a hundred or a hundred, hundred years ago, right? It was all trying to humiliate somebody, beat somebody with a cane on the steps of the <laughs> steps of the Capitol. Not not in not
3: in 20 not in 2020, <laughs> but in uh,
0: but in 1863 or whatever. So
3: I'm yeah. Just saying. Well, all right. I guess I guess we have to make sure people are well-caned on the House floor We should uh, We
0: should cane our representatives uh, philosophically, philosophically, not using actual violence. They should be caned at the polls by the voters.
3: Rhetorically. Rhetorically,
0: to be clear. <laughs> Team Rising joins us next. Stay with us.
6: Well, a new article from Bloomberg in the headline says women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. Uh, Ryan. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. I am the, shocked. the subheading, forging marriage and parenthood has a bigger payoff for American women than men, according to new research. I mean, of course, because women typically take more time off when they have children um, and are more likely to work part time. Yes. Not because of the patriarchy. Actually, most women who have children say they prefer some form of... Of part-time work to full-time. You can't work.
8: disentangle that from the patriarchy, though. See, Will's, are, Will's a- are a product of our culture and our superstructure, right?
6: I I actually think it's the opposite. I think, if anything, it's the patriarchy that continues to insist women become cogs in the corporate machine instead of doing what they would prefer. And women have been conditioned since Betty Betty Friedan to believe that there's no value in work that is sort of innately attractive. Bloomberg's
8: begging the opposite here. Yes.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. Now, Ryan, as a parent, this has to be the least surprising news ever.
8: Kids are extremely expensive. Mm. Yes, and that—that's I mean, well, one reason uh, that I thought the the child tax credit was such an important policy. Because, okay, congratulations to these the the woman who's not who's getting rich and or the man who's getting rich because he's not uh, having kids. And they t- the article talks about how they get to travel a lot more. They get to have a second home in New Jersey. They get to they get to take vacations. All of the people that produce the economic growth that enables that luxurious lifestyle, mm-hmm. all the people who are working on the, the airlines that fly you to your island vacation, the people serving you your drinks, the people cleaning your rooms, all of those people were raised by somebody. Yeah. We're all doing that. We're doing that work for you so that there are people out there to take care of you in your luxurious time. So that's, that's why I thought the child tax credit was at least a little, a little recognition of, of that fact yes congratulations that you know that you're not part of that and as a result your your bank account looks looks much fatter but yes kid like the the quickest route to poverty is uh, having children mm. like that's that's the that's the that's a tragedy in our country
6: well and actually where I think it gets even more tragic and gets to the point we were kind of debating a little bit earlier in this segment is that Lyman Stone at the Institute for Family Studies has found American women actually are having less children than they say they want which is extremely sad and it's extremely sad when you consider I think this was uh, Mindy Kaling in what was it? she was in one of the glossy magazines recently talking about how uh, parents as a gift, for their young daughters, who I think is either graduating high school or college, should be given egg freezing so that they can focus on their careers in their 20s, which, from your perspective, I imagine is a very sad statement on uh, the, the sort of impossibility of workplaces that make it easier for women to have, uh, you know, for, for women to work and, and have uh, fulfilling personal lives in ways that they might want to. And from my perspective, I would say that's incredibly dehumanizing in treating women again like cogs in a corporate machine, whose purpose in life is best fulfilled by work. And I can I've been reading a lot of Marx lately, actually, Ryan. Okay. Um, but you, you know, you can go back to a lot of different uh, thinkers and and how, especially during the Industrial Revolution, they were reacting to uh, tra- changes in work. But what's your perspective? Since I put words in your mouth.
8: <laughs> well, I mean. And which Marx? Marx's gender analysis was not very fleshed out. It was interesting.
6: Right? <laughs> it was.
8: I, I'd recommend Keynes more when it comes to. Because I think you'd appreciate his, you know, th- the way that Keynes tries to think about the economy in terms of the way that it can serve a, a, a robust and, and healthy society. But in something like the 20s or 30s, he was, he was talking about how once you have enough uh, automation and economic growth, people could be working about 15 hours a week. And there's some interesting studies that say that yeah. if you combine life expectancy, the growth in life expectancy, which has since recently reversed, uh, with the extra amount of retirement that people have, coupled with the kind of extended adolescence. Mm-hmm. You know, in 150 years ago, people started hitting the factories by the time they're 10, 11, 12.
9: Yeah.
8: Now, often, you're pushing that deep into your 20s. And so if you combine the, that, let's call it leisure, with the retirement leisure and add it all together, actually a lot of people are working an average of, say, 15, 20 hours a week over their entire lifetimes. But the mistake that we make is then we, we jam it all onto people when they're also, you know, uh, in, a, in a place where they're starting to create families. and it's. Mm-hmm and they're completely sleep-deprived.
6: No, and it's interesting because actually I wasn't even referring to Marx's um, work on gender or sex, but more his work on alienation and labor in general and the way we're conditioned uh, to work post-industrial revolution and in post-industrial worlds it happened really quickly and in the united states i mean listen i'm here i'm happy to be here i think it's great that women have those those freedoms and there are a lot of people who i wouldn't agree with who i absolutely owe a debt of gratitude to for fighting for that there's no question about it um that doesn't mean that uh you know i think every part of it was good um or that we we fully thought through all of the ways women might be fulfilled uh differently
8: his his point is profound and correct that when that when you're exploited for your labor yeah that that your whole your soul is alienated by that and 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 it starts to rip society apart
6: and, and Mindy Kaling is just asking more women than, and this would be my opposition to it uh, it's just prioritizing that that soul ripping exploitation over uh, something that's I think very clearly, much more human and much more fulfilling. So, uh, you know, these are d- deep issues, but I'm actually glad there's more conversation about them because I think the, the, the rapid, rapid, rapid inv- advancements in technology, not just in the past 10 years, but in the past 200 years, and you can even go further back than that, um, have really changed the way we live very quickly. And it's, it's worth pausing just kind of thinking about things.
8: <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> oh, and s- s- Zach Carter's uh Kane's biography is the place is the place to go for that one you'll, you you'll love it yeah oh yeah okay. I think it's called the price of peace
6: I remember we were talking yeah. about that so good. last year it's so good all right I'll check that out well I'll check it out we'll do a rising fridays book club
8: there you go <laughs>